Don't touch that dial. You're tuned in to the Dread Podcast Network. You are now listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris, where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts to the renowned horror director, writer, and producer. Now, here's your host, Mick Garris. From Nice Sky Productions World Headquarters overlooking the glamorous San Fernando Valley, I'm Mick Garris, and this is Postmortem. Tis the season to be, well, bloody. I know that all of our shows are available all of the time, but this is our 2022 holiday special, where we dive into the highest profile gift that Santa left under our tree, Violent Night. Holiday horror has a long history. We've had lots and lots of Halloween horrors, some Easter terrors, Independence Day nightmares, and the like, though I'm still waiting for Eli Roth's Thanksgiving, whose faux trailer graced Grindhouse years ago. But the hardiest of holiday horrors are those centered around Christmas. Why is that? Is it because it is such a revered and wholesome family-oriented tradition that it's an easy target for transgression? There's something about Santa Claus and cookies and milk despoiled by rivulets of blood that hits the horror satisfaction button hard. I remember seeing David Cronenberg's Rabbit for the first time and was witness to a shopping center Santa being killed by gunfire, and it was horrifying and hilarious at the same time. Christmas horror movies have been plentiful, perhaps kicked off by Bob Clark's 1974 holiday perennial Black Christmas a clear influence on Carpenter's Halloween, and followed in no particular order by such titles as Christmas Evil, Gremlins, Jack Frost, Krampus, Rare Exports, A Christmas Tale, Christmas Evil, Better Watch Out, The Silent Night, Deadly Night series, Elves, Anna and the Apocalypse, Home for the Holidays, and so many more. But the latest sanguinary snowstorm to hit the screen may be the bloodiest. Violent Night is a major studio movie backed by a huge ad campaign and release pattern that bodes well for our plucky little genre. There's a ton of horror cred in the people who made this film, from Norwegian director Tommy Virkola, whose Dead Snow made an international sensation on its release in 2009, to the screenwriters Josh Miller and Pat Casey, who wrote the way-better-than-anyone-expected Sonic the Hedgehog movies. Josh also created and co-hosts the excellent Best Movies Never Made podcast. We'll take a deep dive with all three of them into the giddy heights of holiday horror right now. So, Tommy, starting out in Norway, how does somebody become a filmmaker in Norway? And were there dreams of Hollywood in your sugar plums and dreams of Hollywood in your head? <laughs> well, dreams for sure, but it was never, I don't, when I was a kid, it was never a realistic dream. I'm, I'm from the very, very north of Norway, like Burr. above the Arctic Circle. Wow. So there was really only two directors ever to come out of that whole region. Um, and one of them was actually Oscar nominated in 86, I believe, for a movie called Pathfinder. So he was kind of the, the shining light. We all like, okay, that would be amazing. But it was such a big leap to take, say, you want to be a director or be a, anything with film. So I'm, I'm actually educated uh, to be a plumber. <laughs> and then that didn't <laughs> work job. out. Same <laughs> job. Yeah. That didn't work out well. Uh, so I started IT. That didn't work out really. I fell asleep at every lecture. Uh, so I decided, okay, I got to do the one thing I'm really passionate about that I love more than anything else, which is film. And so I, I started uh, a media production, it was called, in my local town, and I went to film school in Australia, of all places. Really? Yeah, because in Norway, obviously, the, the, the pros of socialism is that you get free schools, and they also actually give you money if you want to go abroad to study. So I literally looked at the map that what is the furthest away from my hometown I can get? <laughs> there's the north of Norway. There's the east coast of Australia. I think I want to go there. <laughs> so I started film at Bonn University uh, at the Gold Coast. And it was there I met a lot of my core crew, actually. So my production designer, my DP, my producer, and a, a B camera or A camera. We're, like, we were all a gang together there, and we came up together, and we made Kill Bullio and the, the, the Dead Snow movies. So Dead Snow, the Dead Snow movies... How do you, is there a healthy Norwegian cinema? Yes, there is, but I'm from, again, like there's, you have something called the NFI, and the NFI is basically the government program for film. And they, you have to apply and they give you money. But obviously, I never 
for any movie I ever made, gotten money out of the official uh, like Norwegian NFI system. They don't like to support horror films. No. Most of these government uh, agencies. No, not at all. And genre movie, when I grew up, was absent in Norway. Like I think there was two genre of films ever made until the '90s, like horror movies. And then there was one uh, that kind of made waves and was also made independently. And then came Dead Snow. And it's like it show it showed the path. Okay, people in Norway, Norway actually want to see horror movies, and there's a market for it. And it be, those movies became hits. But yeah, no, it was very hard to get it made actually. And we, because I made my first film was a super low budget comedy called Kill Bill, which is a spoof on Kill the Kill Bill series. Yeah. And we we made that just we had a crew of ten, and we just made it. With my I starred in the film with my friends, and it was just like I, I, it's a miracle. But we got a cinematic release, and it became a hit. And that wow. and every single cent we made on that film, we just poured into Dead Snow. <laughs> Yeah, well, the production values of Dead Snow belie a very low cost, and I would guess that that's from all of the things you learned at film school in Australia. Yeah, yeah, and and also like we, like the crew, it helped that we had done like five or six shorts together in Australia, and we came to Norway, did our first film, and then Dead Snow. But Dead Snow was a massive undertaking for us. Like we, we really didn't. It was we had a professional uh, lighting crew for the first time, mm-hmm. <laughs> and we had like it was just suddenly professionals around us, even though the crew was small, and we shot it in my around my hometown, which no movies shoot there, and like again like it it works, but my inexperience uh, was like for example I yeah I wanted I wanted to put this cabin in the mountain um, because it looks so good, but there's no roads there, but we, so we got a helicopter to fly in the the shell of the cabin <laughs> and then we had the only way in and out on set was snowmobiles and in hindsight oh. like why didn't we just put it next to a road at least again like i was so inexperienced uh, and i and all of us were well it had to have been a big surprise when it became such an international hit it sold in territories all around the world including here yeah yeah no it, it played in sundance and it's still to this day one of the best screenings i ever attended was the midnight screening in sundance yeah and uh, yeah, no, that that was what started it all, and and it, but it was, yeah, it's it's, again, like it was my obviously my love letter to uh, the horror comedy genre. Again, like nothing had done like that in Norway ever before, and I grew up loving that stuff. And what were your favorites? If I have to pick one, I I, I would say the eye opener for me two movies was Evil Dead Two and and Brain Dead Dead Alive. Like yeah, because yeah. I I especially remember Brain Dead. It was like the amount of gore but how funny it was it just yeah. it was like oh my god you can actually do both these things um so that that was a yeah that that really made a mark on me um but yeah so that was kind of the beginning of it and we made it again like we made it mostly with our friends but with a few more professionals we got distribution and we sold uh, after sundance and that got me an agent and then i got over here so your choice to do a horror movie was not a cynical financial move, but because you have passion for the genre. Oh yeah, yeah. No, I that that was my again. Like after the, my first film, I I told my writing partner I really want to do a Nazi zombie movie. Yeah, and, <laughs> which is a subgenre of its own. Yeah, the yes. Shockwaves. Shockwaves. And I've so many, one. and that was made in Florida on sixteen millimeter. Oh really? Yeah, yeah. I didn't with Peter Cushing. Yeah. yeah, Peter Cushing was in it, and I remember. But again, like in the north of Norway, we have a very strong World War II history. Um, the northern Norway was, uh, it's not a lie, a lot of the backstory in the movie, they hid their biggest warships in the fjords there to mm. threaten the, the convoy between Russia and England. So we had so many high-level Nazis and ships and equipment up in the north. So so many stories and legends and myths when I grew up. So we just tapped into that basically. And and, and uh, yeah, then I, I remember when we sold the film to the investors, like, yeah, what's the worst What's the worst thing than a zombie? A Nazi zombie. <laughs> <laughs> So, Josh and Pat, you guys uh, are also big fans of the genre. What were the, uh, Josh, you first, what was your, uh, what were your movies that kicked your ass? I mean, similar to Tommy's, we're, Pat and I are both from Nor- uh, Minnesota, which is kind of the Norway. The American Norway. <laughs> of America, both climate and, uh. I do feel like there's something about being cooped up in the winter that <laughs> makes you love horror extra somehow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, Evil Dead 2, I guess it's kind of a, a cliche for filmmakers. But I think the way I always articulate, articulate it was Evil Dead 2 specifically, but most of Sam Raimi's stuff was the first movies that I really saw where I like I really got the idea of like, oh, he's like directing, like he's using directing almost like acting, like he's really controlling 
the tools camera. of cinema. Yeah, it's, it's, it's got a personality. It's not just the Altman, you know, Clint Eastwood. I put the camera in the corner and I cast it well. And like, right, another valid you. way to make movies, yeah, but totally, not. Yeah. The the beauty of the horror genre is that you can be expressive with the tools, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that was really liberating. Uh, we became friends in high school. Um, and started making movies immediately. And just knowing that, you know, we didn't have, like, we never even made it as far as Tommy, as far as, like, let's really, like, raise money. Uh, we had a movie that got, our first movie that got released on DVD. God bless the early 2000s DVD boom. Where <laughs> distributors were just like, is it 90 minutes long? We'll take it. <laughs> well, yeah. But we made a movie called Hey, Stop Stabbing Me that cost about $500. We didn't even, like, the idea yeah. of, like, how do you even raise money? Was Tom beyond us. Like, crew of ten, I'm like ten. Wow, <laughs> you got two. It was really just the two <laughs> Ooh, of la, us. La, and anyone Tommy. who was standing yeah. nearby would be like, "Hold this," you but, know. But definitely Sam Raimi. I mean, for me, definitely early Peter Jackson as well, and then yeah. uh, early Stuart Gordon. I think uh. Reanimator was very much a movie for me where. You know, it's a horror comedy, but at the same time, I almost like don't like calling it a horror comedy because it's not it's not that it's going for overt laughs. It's right. Just, right. It's like perfectly straddling the idea. Yeah, because of... most horror comedies are neither funny nor horrific. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they, they kind of give up both sides. But uh, one of the beautiful things uh, about Dead Snow and its sequel, Dead Snow 2, Red versus Dead, um, and particularly Violent Night their violent night had me in stitches. I mean, the funny stuff is really funny and the gory stuff is really gory and there's a lot of tension in it and the like, and it, it manages to walk a very fine razor wire. Yeah. And for us, like pitching it, we, this is a, like, we couldn't believe anyone got so excited about it along the process. We always think it was the kind of pitch you tell somebody and they go like, we can't make that though, (laughs) you know, Uh, but that everyone on board, seem to really get and want to like protect the tone because it could go wrong in any different way. And so we're excited when um, our producers were like, we're going to show the script to Tommy. Cause we're like, Oh, well, I mean, he gets it. Like, definitely. <laughs> uh, and so when he responded to it so positively, it really felt like, wow, we might, we might actually get this the way we, imagine because we always assumed if we sold it it would get turned into like a pg like paul blart kind of yeah. christmas you know <laughs> or Bl- oddly yeah. enough strip out most of the comedy and like push it too far in the just like r-rated action space yeah, it was kind of a delicate balance yeah. but yeah definitely tommy totally got it and so we wound up with everybody trying to make the same movie which is kind of a miracle <laughs> you know so how did how did it come to you tommy did it come through an agent was there a pitch was there a script already there was a script already it was it was uh, the producers sent it to me i and i knew them from way back um Dave Leach, Kelly McCormick, and Guy Nanella are the producers. And Dave Leach actually directed Second Unit on Hansel and Gretel uh, before the it became hunters, yeah. yeah before it became one of the biggest directors in the world. Uh, so we wow. became friends on that, and we've been keeping in touch. And I got to know Kelly, and then Guy, and 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 Guy had just started working for them. And he the first meeting they had because I think Dave was considering directing it himself for a while. Yeah. And then he stepped away to do Bullet Train, and I, I think it was Guy who said, wait, what about Tommy? Is he too obvious? <laughs> <laughs> um, Sometimes the obvious is the right choice. <laughs> yeah. No, and I read it. I loved it. And I again, the mix of tones is what I love. Uh, and it was all there, and, and yeah, I jumped on. And again, like one of the first things I said was, I really want to try to make it a Christmas movie because I, I know we can do the action and the gore and all that stuff and the crazy humor, but I really want to try to embrace the heart because that, to me, could be a really interesting combination. So that was kind of my way in, I guess. Yeah. What do you think, Pat, the appeal is for holiday horror we talked about in the introduction and the like, but why do you think they're, they're so popular, particularly Christmas? I mean, just the juxtaposition, I suppose, and like the that most Christmas movies are so sappy sweet that people who aren't that sappy sweet really want something that's the opposite, that they can still get into the Christmas spirit. Where you're sick to death of the carols around you everywhere you go. (laughs) But I mean, yeah, with this movie, we're kind of trying to do both at once to try and get that Christmas, the Christmas magic, which, I don't know, like making a movie, like what you're really after always is just like those moments of movie magic, which is sort of like 
indescribable, like what makes movie magic, but you know it when you're feeling it. Right. And there's also Christmas magic, which is sort of related. <laughs> yeah. um, but to try and get all of that in with like ridiculous over the top violence and that kind of Evil Dead 2 kind of stuff, you know? Yeah, because like Gremlins, which is another, I think, seminal for me Great. growing up. Uh, but that's I a did movie the making that I would of. Say, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's a movie that I would say is. Is, is taking the idea of, like, aren't you sick of Christmas movies and kind of trying to mess with it. Um, but we, yeah, as Pat was saying, we were kind of like, well, can, is there a way to do it where we are, in fact, embracing? Like, we're like, no, this is like a Christmas movie that's supposed to give you, it's not going to have the Phoebe Cates, you know, monologue. Like, right. it's, it's you, you want to get the warm fuzzies while you're also seeing people's heads getting chopped off. Like the anti-Christmas stuff, which was part of it was like, because we start off, you know, he is kind of a bad Santa, like just at the top of the film to give you the biggest swing to come back around to the warm fuzzies by the end of the movie, you know? <laughs> well, let's go back a little bit because I'm interested in, in the trajectory of all your careers. But Tommy, after doing the Dead Snow movies and finally getting an opportunity with Hansel and Gretel Witch Hunters to do a Hollywood movie, uh, tell me about that transition and, and what it was like for you. Well, it was, um, you know, the, the the idea actually spawned in Australia in film school. We had this thing called um, Script Writing 2, I believe this was one uh, called, and part of that class was uh, uh, Pitch, and we had one minute each, and we got grade on the pitch. And I didn't have much. I only, I really had, uh, I went up before the teachers, and I said, all right, Hansel and Gretel, 15 years later, and The Witch Hunters. And one of the teachers actually said to me, Tommy, don't ever mention this idea ever again until in front of a Hollywood producer, and, <laughs> and I guarantee you, you will sell it. So I kept my mouth shut. I went back and did the uh, Kabulia and Dead Snow, and and in Sundance, I got an agent, and I got went to LA for the first time closely after. And I only made like a one sheet. I had some ideas to pitch before, and I waited with Hansel and Gretel to the last. And I met with the, my first meeting the first day, was with Adam McKay, his company. It was oh, Adam wow. McKay and those guys. Because their producer had, by chance, he was not a horror fan at all, but he had been dragged in by his friend to see Dead Snow. And, and he had loved it, and he had called my agent and said, make sure that we're the first meeting Tommy has when he comes to L.A. Wow, that's yeah. a nice entry. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> Red was, carpet. Uh, yeah, so first meeting, first day, I pitched that, I ended the pitch with Hansel and Gretel, and I actually remember seeing Adam McKay and Kevin Messing just looking at each other. Yeah, that sounds interesting. Um, <laughs> One minute's the perfect length for a pitch. <laughs> yeah. No, and they took me to Paramount, I'm not joking, the day after, and we sold it. And I understand it's never been that easy again after. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, those listening at home, this is not the norm. No, no. Um, no, with that said, it was a big transition, obviously, and I'm not going to lie that the whole the movie is very far away from the script I wrote, mm. and the studio was very hands-on, uh, yeah, in pre-production and production, especially in post-production. Um, and also for me, just directing a movie with suddenly 200 people in the crew, like I, it's a cliche to say it, but I literally had to pretend I know I knew what I was doing the first. <laughs> I remember the first day, and this is such a weird, like first day they were lighting, and they bring these two people in with the same costume as Jeremy and Gemma. I was like, wait, who who are those people? <laughs> what are you doing on set? Like, those are the doubles. Like, what? What's, what do you mean? <laughs> you actually use doubles to light? You mean the a... actors don't do this <laughs> yeah. part? Yeah. It was such a shock to me, like and and a luxury, of course. But that was just that was the first day. Um, but there's a new machine that you're not used to. And, exactly. And and. I'm just curious how you dealt with that. Well, it had to be every day there was something new that you'd not experienced before. Oh, yeah, yeah. And especially, I, I you know, I, I'm, I'm mixed on this because I have to give credit to Paramount and the regime at that time because they gave me a shot. It was a $65 million movie. I had yeah. done, like, nothing before that. And it's my script, and they said, go make it. But as we started making it, a little bit in pre-production, but mostly in production and post-production, they really started getting their hands in there. They said, oh, we can't do this. We can't That's do that. That's a little late. <laughs> yeah, I know. And we were in Germany shooting it, so they would, I would shoot during the day and I would have these Skype sessions during night and they would like give me notes of the scenes that were shooting the next week and I had to rewrite. So, like, it was a very little, it was just a, such a shock course, I guess, into the studio fil uh, studios and how they can work and it became really muddled and, and um and especially in post-production when they just, no, cut that, cut that, cut that, cut that. Like, there was, they really, and I get it, like, in hindsight, the movie did really well financially, but yeah. critically it got slammed really hard. 
How does that feel? I mean, I've gone through this too. Yeah. And it's it's not fun, but uh, you know, you were fresh and new and you just made your first Hollywood movie. Yeah, no, it was tough and, and especially because I felt like god damn, it, this is not the film I wanted to make. Uh, no. So is so it, you I had to like, defend it in the face of knowing that you were forced to change it. Yeah, and at least I did I mean, I guess I did it for my friends and me, but I knew, also knew I can't say that to the press. I just looked like I'm making excuses and I I don't want to get hired again. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um but it was a huge learning curve for me especially how to deal with the studio and the politics and how to i i so there's a cliche that you learn when you come here is that choose your battles um so i'd heard that and in the beginning especially the script process in in production i kind of said yes to too many things probably yeah. and then in post-production i started fighting on everything i discovered on sleepwalkers that if you are amenable to their changes, too amenable to their changes, they think they can roll you over yeah. easily. Yeah, and I was probably in the beginning, uh, and I, like, sure, I, because I wanted to be that guy, I wanted to get everybody's notes and thoughts, and I want to be, because I heard that, choose your battles, so okay, I got to wait for the big ones, but then I started realizing, god damn, i given up this, i given up that, i given up, where's my movie going? So in the post-production, I really started to fight for things, and I, in the end, they, I think they just got sick of me. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I have to get, again, yeah, I had amazing producers, Adam McKay, Will Farrell, uh, they really fought for it, and so did Jeremy Renner, and, uh, but in the end, it was just, yeah, it was a, it, it was a movie that ended up in between things. Yeah. Um, so, that's the reason why I went back into Dead Snow 2, because I really, I just needed to have fun again and cleanse, cleanse myself. And literally, a lot of that rewriting, or writing that script was just like, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do that, and I'm going <laughs> to show them. It. <laughs> it was a lot, of, and I think you can see that in the film. There's a lot of, like, almost aggression in, in some of that, those sequences. Yeah, like, I'm going to yeah. show people I can do all these things. Plus, and, it's so much bigger than the first one yeah. in scale. Yeah. That had to have come from the confidence of carrying a $65 million movie on your shoulders. Oh, yeah, for sure. And, and, and because the first one had done really well and sold so much, we got a lot more money. And we shot it in Iceland uh, because they wow. had a rebate. We couldn't shoot it in Norway. Um, and it was really fun. And we, it was a great, great... It was. It's probably... That and I would say Violent Night and the Trip are my three favorite films. Uh, but that's no two, especially because it was such a. After Hunts and Gretel, I was really, really like depressed and was like, oh God, this is going to be tough doing another film mm -hmm. again. Like, but then I that's no two and. Uh, yeah, it felt it felt great again. I yeah, felt. it refreshed you. <laughs> yeah, gave you your passion back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Pat and Josh, you jumped right into the deep end with Sonic the Hedgehog, major studio, movie base with a movie star attached and uh, uh, based on a hugely successful video game and all that. So tell me about the process of how you guys made that happen. First, uh, how you got the job, how you pitched it. Yeah, then, I mean, I would say it's, I don't think if we jumped into the deep end because we've been kicking around for years and years before that. Yeah, yeah but, our, but our the arrival breakthrough was yeah, a big oh, one. For yeah. sure. I mean, yeah, yeah. our arrival was a lot less exciting than Tommy uh, here in LA. <laughs> we we did the classic, just load our car up with all our stuff and drive out here. And we're feeling here. pretty good because of Hey Stop Stabbing Me and how good that had been, but it's not like it, like it had become a hit or anything, but we had this calling card. But then no one ever really watched like <laughs> regular audience. It was like enough people in the industry saw it. I mean, oddly enough, not to skip ahead, but Violent Night came about in part because one of the first people to reach out to us for Hey Stop Stab Me was a guy named Keith Calder, who started a company called Snoot uh, for genre fans. I would say probably best known that uh, they made the initial wave of uh, Adam Wingard, Simon Barrett movies, Year uh, Next, The yeah, Guest, and yeah. the Blair Witch uh, sequel, reboot, I guess, yeah. sequel? Call sequel it. reboot, sequel <laughs> boot. Sequel. Yeah. Um, C-boot. <laughs> but, uh, but in a roundabout way, they, they kind of helped kickstart the pitching process on Violent Night. But yeah, it's probably like after really no one saw Violent or Hey Stop Stabbing Me, so we're kind of just... Although it is available on a Blu-ray uh, anniversary <laughs> 20th anniversary right from seven films. <laughs> Only uh, took you uh, another 15 years to get your studio movie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but it was... Uh, we were kicking around for like 10 years just doing the most independent of indie movies. And then we got an uh, animated show on Fox called Golan the Insatiable, which we also loved that no one watched. Oh. Um, which but... is kind of the story of our lives. Yeah, like always very... <laughs> Very little advertising, and what advertising our stuff got was always extremely bad as well. But, but also, like, hey, stop, I mean, just the right number of people in the industry liked Golan, and one of those was a guy named Toby Asher, who was an up-and-comer 
producer at Neil Moritz's company. Uh-huh. Um, and so he brought us in just for a general because of Goal and the Insatiable. And, you know, like we're in your office here and looking around at all the nice stuff you have. Uh, and Toby had a bunch of Sonic the Hedgehog stuff. And uh-huh. we're just like, oh, are you making a Sonic movie? <laughs> yeah, basically, like, can we can we write it? We're, we, we should do this. We just told him we should do the Sonic the Hedgehog movie. So they were going to do it. Regardless. They were already, they were already, already in, in development. And but... they already had writers on it. That was He was like, calm down. We were like, okay, well, oh. after this fails, call, call us. Right? <laughs> we made that bold claim. And then a couple of months later, he actually did. He was like, do you, do you guys really have an idea for the Sonic the Hedgehog movie? So they had been in development with it, but they yeah, weren't happy with it. Yeah, it out creatively. Yeah. I think the take they were doing was like very meta. And I think ultimately people were just like, I don't know if this movie should be so meta but we didn't know that so it was it was so we got the call to come in basically fresh as though it was a new thing and kind of engage in some sort of pitch bake-off where we pitched you know sega and neil and various things and then our moritz pitch was particularly hilarious because he was i think in cuba doing one of the fast and furious movies oh my god it was before zoom so it was just like over the phone and we were told we had like 45 minutes and he gets on and we're told like, actually, you only have like 25 minutes or he says that. And he's like, so I'm just not going to interrupt you guys. Go. So we're just like pitching over the phone into this silent void. He was having lunch. Probably <laughs> in the bathroom. But then it goes to the end and he's like, I love it. Thanks, guys. I got to go. Like, uh... <laughs> That's exactly the feedback you want, right? Yeah, yeah. So somehow we got that job, even though, yeah, we'd never done a big movie before. Like, we'd never even really gotten a chance to... It's and not like really we'd done... like, written a, a script for a big movie that had not gone, even. We and didn't we hadn't have really done any sample. family yeah. stuff. Yeah. Uh, we'd done two Hot Wheels animated things that were... They weren't straight to video, but it was that style format. They were like 40 minutes long, but that was for like four-year-olds. Yeah, later our agent told us that he couldn't believe it, that he was like, that we talked ourselves into that job based on nothing. <laughs> yeah, because we had no feature samples to show them in the family space. But this know? is the first one you can talk to people about who say, oh, you did that? For yeah, sure. exactly. I mean, you know? It's always that weird, like, you know, you're in the dentist, and like, what do you do? And it's like, oh, I'm a writer. And then you just know they're going to say, have you done anything I've seen? And you're yeah. just like, no. Yeah, it's like, like you no. don't want to like list off all your credits. I always pull the, the hocus pocus card. Yes, <laughs> yeah, yeah. hocus pocus. Uh, but now, yeah, now now we have our hocus pocus. But yeah, so yeah, Sonic, exactly. Uh, yeah, proved to be after kind of a rough launch, like proved to be very successful, and audiences really liked it and won us a lot of goodwill. And it got good reviews, which you don't expect for that kind of movie. Yeah, I mean. We were open for it. We thought we thought the movie was good. <laughs> yeah, uh, absolutely. People, like I said in the introduction, it was so much better than people anticipated because it didn't need to be that good to be successful. And that was why we were very happy that people liked two because we're kind of like, well, you only get that once. The yes. lower expectations. Yeah, exactly. Uh, we're like, now we've now we've really got to deliver on part two. <laughs> but it was we. So we went out to pitch. It was when Sonic One was coming out. Or, like, when it was about to come out, we were kind of like, oh, we should go out with, like, a pitch right now. Um, But we weren't sure what to do. And so we gathered with our reps and kind of ran them through a list of ideas that didn't have Violent Night on it. And then, like, that was kind of a last throw-in bonus one. And it was like, oh, and we also Just verbal only. We've got this thing that's sort of like, it's like Die Hard, but with Santa. And, like, we are all (laughs) like, oh, my God, tell us about that. (laughs) Um, And it was the next day... Uh, our agent Mike Goldberg talked to Kelly McCormick and mentioned it, and Kelly liked the idea. And then he called us immediately and was like, "Can you guys have lunch with David Leach tomorrow and like pitch him this movie?" He's in town briefly, <laughs> and uh, we were like, "I mean, we weren't ready, but we were like, um, yeah," uh, <laughs> and kind of got our pitch together like that morning, and then went and had the lunch, and then it all came together very fast because we were then out pitching studios the week Sonic One premiered. Like at Good the Sonic timing. One premiere, we were at you know partying afterwards, and then. Again, our agents were like, you guys got to go home. You have four pitches tomorrow. We were like, oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> so, Tommy, what were you looking for at the time? Was this in your wheelhouse, or were you trying to do something um, within the genre, outside the genre? Well, I, I guess I always wanted to do like a, a, a more of a traditional action movie, action flick, but I have a big love for the 80s and 90s action movies. Uh, and Like what? I, all of Shane Black stuff, I would say, I love. Uh, yeah. Truly love. And I, I feel like 
uh, I, I actually rewatched uh, not long ago with my girlfriend the Midnight Run as well. Like that, those kind of movies, oh, yeah. I feel like I just disappeared and uh, really, really R-rated stuff with real characters, but really fun and 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 also like the this is like me just sorry just side uh, side note. But I, I miss movies where it's not just about the one or two or three main characters, where the henchmen and yeah. side, like have an arc or a great moment or a great piece of dialogue and. And and yeah, that was. I mean, when I read that script, I felt like a lot of those things that I loved when I uh, the action movies I loved growing up was there. Um, but I really hadn't because I just I was actually still finishing my previous film called The Trip here in the U.S. Um, and uh, Kelly, Dave, and Guy saw an early cut of it uh, while I was still finishing post, and they, based on that, wanted to send me Violent Night. So I really hadn't had time to think about what I want to do next before they sent me the script. You're still and, finishing up. Yeah. yeah. So that was probably July, June, July, maybe, of last year, really. Yeah. So wow, things happen <laughs> yeah. fast. So then I came on board and and um, tell me about your first meeting with the guys, with the writers. Well, unsurprisingly, it was over Zoom. Yes, uh, oh, as things yeah. are these days. I guess the most notable thing about it was I was um, helping my podcast which mick has been on yeah go back yeah. and listen to his episode about great his, podcast his unmade you must mummy movie yeah uh two just, of them yeah <laughs> <laughs> um but i'm our podcast is currently on hiatus because steve my co-host is finishing his new doc which is called shark exploitation oh it's about exactly what it sounds like the history of the shark movie subgenre but awesome. we're in uh new england getting interviews so i had to zoom from the back seat of a car <laughs> nice. driving right, from right. boston to connecticut oh god <laughs> you yeah. kept falling out the yep. time. yeah yeah like they just sent us they sent us that cut of the trip so i had just watched that and i absolutely loved it now too. So i haven't I like, seen the really trip adored. i don't know about the oh, trip yeah, it's great yes. well, that was, i was just gonna say when um because you know i knew tommy from his horror movies and not yeah. like, not like we were like but can he do a non-horror movie but <laughs> but we were saying talking about that with guy and he's like you got to see his new one so he sent us a link and I, everyone should watch it's on netflix right yeah so yes it got theatrical in norway but netflix bought the rest of the world it's got a very generic title here called the trip yeah um, so there have been a lot of movies with that title yeah. yes but uh, i remember pat and i watched i think we were texting each other during the movie and i don't we don't want to spoil anything so i can't exactly say what we were saying but there was no because i'm gonna watch it yeah, tonight but there was yeah. a, a certain element of the movie where we we're basically we were like if the payoff at the ending of this is blank that this guy will 100 percent get violent night yeah it's well, totally uh some similarities to violent night that uh the combination of ultra violence and really dark humor but also some yeah. heart and it's probably the darkest film i mean you i think you think you'll enjoy it it's it's super yeah, it, it, it uh, I'm just surprised I didn't know about it, but, yeah. and that's because it's Netflix. Yeah, it's also local language. It, it was it's a Norwegian film because I was uh, just to sidetrack on that. I was just put a student in in the U.S. Then the the pandemic hit, yeah. so we just recast it and shot it in Norway because Norway wasn't that hit hit that hard. Uh, but yeah, that was the film basically that landed me uh, long at night because the studio also saw it and they loved it, and um, yeah, that was it. And, so did you have the guys pitch you when you were on the phone, or was it a two-way conversation, no, three-way conversation? I guess it was more me th saying my thoughts uh, on that call, was it? I'm trying to remember, because uh, you'd already read the script, Yeah, right? I had read the script at this point, because we were talking about, that already we were talking about we're going to find our Santa, and because I think the script was what we went out with. We didn't do rewrites before we sent out, did we? I can't, I can't remember. I it all happened so fast. It's funny, because yeah. my memory of that... Zoom from the back seat of a car was more. It was more like a kickoff meeting. Yeah, like it was so kind of like we all just we're already on board. Yeah, what yeah. do we do next? Yes. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And I think yeah. that's really what we were talking about. Whether or not I don't remember if the second draft happened before we went out to actors, but we definitely were already kind of talking about like what do we got to do to get this into shooting shape. Yeah. So Tommy, what were some of the things that you wanted to do to to um, make it ready? Well, first of all, the, the first thing was is a, a budget thing. Is there was a, some big stuff in there that we I knew we had to take out because uh, when Leach was just considering directing it, there was a much higher budget. Uh, so when I came on board, it was going to fit on the parameter around twenty. Mm -hmm. So there was some stuff, including a big. Um, uh, sleigh helicopter chase fight yeah. sequence at the end with a bazooka. <laughs> so I would have loved to have seen it. It would have been great. Uh, but well, I, if I, you I, made it in Norway for twenty million, you could have done that. Yeah, yeah, no, that's true. Um, 
but yeah, so we got the snowmobiles in instead because I love snowmobiling where I'm from. So that, and I always loved snowmobiles in movies, and I feel like they're so rare. I, you have Die Hard 2, and you have one of the James Bonds, and Inception are the only one I can think of that have a mm-hmm. good snowmobile sequence. But other than that, it was just small stuff here and there. I, I remember the, I guess one of the bigger things I asked for was that big um, face-off with the bad guy and, the, mm-hmm. and, and Santa in the middle of the film. Which was definitely a note that we didn't mind getting, because as soon as he said it, I mean, we were like, oh, yeah, Lights went on. Because <laughs> um, that's usually the note we get. We had to write the movie so fast that in some sense we couldn't give ourselves our own notes. Because that was one of our big Sonic the Hedgehog Part 1 notes, was we was like, there was a whole version where Robotnik and Sonic like don't really... No, but that wasn't other. a note that came from the studio. No, I'm saying anything. from us. Yeah, it was like, <laughs> they had other notes for like a, the second draft of Sonic the Hedgehog. They were like, you gotta do this, you gotta do that, you gotta do that, and we were like, okay, but the most important one is coming from us is that we gotta get Sonic and Robotnik a face-to-face <laughs> earlier in the movie, and they were like, we don't care about that. We are like, we're doing it anyway. Yeah. <laughs> Trust us. So yeah, so uh, when Tommy gave that note, we were like, oh, duh. <laughs> what are we doing over here? So Tommy, you'd grew your loins from your previous studio experience on Hansel and Gretel. Yeah. Um, so you went in. Um, how was the experience during development with the script? Were, was there a lot of input this time? No, I have to say there was the complete opposite. They were so supportive and they were so, I think they understood as well. And they realized that we don't, we don't, we won't have the budget of a Marvel movie. We got to compensate in other places. We got to have attitude and fun and crazy action. And I don't think we ever got to know. I was a couple of times I was sure they're going to have a reaction uh, at some of the rewrites, but no, uh, never. Uh, the only pushback I got was actually from the producers when I pitched. There's a scene where Santa uh, isn't in the basement and he's pulling things up of his his bag to try to find some stuff he can use for the fight. And at one point, I had what if he pulls up. Like this giant dildo and anal beads. <laughs> that is for Gertrude, the older lady for the ho- in the house. But it's an R after all. Yeah, yeah. that was when I was like, maybe not Tommy. Right. <laughs> but um, but other than that, no, it was uh, it was very and again like in in post uh, the most extreme stuff and in dialogue and, and shocking moments they actually wanted more of. Can we extend this wow. moment? And so that was really surprising in the best way. And and yeah, we always. I have to say it was uh, yeah it was it gave me belief that you can actually make this these films here uh, and and they are just supportive it was a great experience the universal I wonder how much like our title really like created the atmosphere for the studio to really yeah that's true which was like when we went out to pitch it we didn't have the title we were just calling it Die Hard Santa Um, (laughs) unless Die Hard's lawyers are listening in which case it was just called Regular Santa yeah Yeah. Uh, but it's kind of like Die Hard (laughs) but it was like in a uh in that meeting with Universal, I think they were like, do you have a title? And we were like, I mean, probably some kind of Christmas pun, like Violent Night, or they were like, oh my God, stop. Yeah, like stopped <laughs> us before we got to our second idea. What um, was the second idea? I now I don't remember. We did have a whole list. I mean, all sorts of dumb puns wreck the halls. But I think we <laughs> said Violent Night first because it was probably the best of the puns. Yeah. So uh, during the actual uh, casting process, were you guys all involved, or was it primarily in your hands, Tommy? Well, funnily enough, they when they they didn't tell me this way later, but they, they when they were writing it, they had mentioned Harbor uh, as the perfect Santa. And for my end, like it was it was an early casting meeting. You know how you get these lists from agencies yeah. and all that stuff. And it was me and the producers. And I wonder if. One of the studio execs was there as well. Maybe uh, anyway, we're going through these names, and I can't remember who, but somebody. What about David Harbor? And it was literally one of those moments where we just all look at each other and said, "Yes, he's he's absolutely perfect." And he's one of those guys where you go, "Oh, it's that guy." You might not know his name, but you're that guy. I've seen him in a hundred movies. Yes, Plus we all tell they're like Hopper from you know, Stranger Things. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, no, and and he. Um, I think we got the script in like only a couple of days later and he was shooting in um, New Orleans. I Skyped with him the next week and he was on board and loved the script, loved the humor and the character and and saw what it, what could be done with it. And his Were there new of, ideas that he brought into Oh the yeah, character? many during yeah. the process. He, he was he was adamant, like many things, like but to ground it, he really wanted to play it as grounded as humanly possible. He also wanted the, the physical transformation to be complete from the Coca-Cola Santa we knew. He really, like the, the round glasses and the perfect yeah. beard and all that stuff. And we had a lot of fun kind of revealing the layers, what's revealed in each fight. And he was very like, 
uh, again, like one of the things he had issues with <laughs> was the, uh, and again, because it goes against his instincts, uh, like was the one-liners. Yeah. Um, yeah, original draft was just wall-to-wall <laughs> Christmas one-liners. <laughs> uh, but yeah, he also understands that marketing will want him, and to be fair, yeah, the marketing are using the hell out of those, yeah, yeah. even though they're not in the film. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like see, he was always about, okay, what, but I got to play this as a real character. I'm not going to say these things to myself and I'm alone in the hallway saying this cool Christmas line. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, but you he, love degrade. He's sort of degraded like Bruce Campbell in a Sam Raimi movie. Oh yeah. Yeah. He loved that stuff. And, and, um, and he loved playing a deadpan again. Like he, he, he every, and we, me and him talked really early on that the moment we try to be funny with it, it's not going to be funny. Right. We've got to trust the script and the, the, the setting and the comedy rich. that tries too hard is never funny. It's no. painful. Yeah. I mean, that was always the idea was to basically play it like a real action movie. I mean, when people were like, what makes the bad guys funny? We were like, nothing. They're exactly the bad guys from the straight version of this. Yeah, that's and they why ended up funny. being so funny. Yeah. Because it was so deadpan, you know? Yeah. Tell was... me more about the casting process and working with kids, because that's always a challenge, not just because they're kids, but because your hours are shortened when you're working with them as well. Yeah. Um... Well, I mean, after Harbor, we cast uh, Scrooge, which was John Leguizamo. And that was the yeah. issue suggested because he had worked with him on John Wick. Yeah, that would be a totally unexpected casting choice, too, yeah. and it's brilliant. And brilliant. And the moment he suggested it, I said, yeah, of course, we're, if we can have him. Uh, and he read the script, loved it, and he put so much of himself in that character. He loves to ad-lib. He loves to, he's so good at coming up funny lines. Yeah. And he really gave that role personalities, personality. But one of the things also we put in the script uh, something I guess I, I can't I don't think it was there the, no there wasn't the, the fact that he speech? has yeah the, the fact that he has a personal yeah, was a later ad. yeah hate for Christmas we wanted to add a layer to him and make it personal at the end fight not just about the money and he loved that kind of stuff uh, but he's also the funniest guy ever and just a sweet man um, Beverly D'Angelo was because of Christmas Vacation one of my yeah, favorite yeah we movies. haven't seen her in years yeah and was this a comeback for her yeah, sort of, uh, I guess. And, and she, you know, she had the kids very late in life, and she kind of stepped away from acting for a long time. Uh, she I had see. twins when she was 49, 50, uh, and she wow. stepped away. Um, and I, I guess this could be called a, sort of a comeback. And she was so fun, and so uh, she loved uh, that character and loved the swearing part of it for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> loved to improvise there. Um, and yet, then we had to cast Trudy because we knew the little girl. We knew that was the heart of the film, uh, the Santa right. and the little girl, and... You had to get Natalie Wood, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and and, uh, and and she, you know, as you do with kids, you read so many, so many kids, and 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 um, looked at so many tapes, and finally she came across her, and I think she just had that innocence and sweetness, obviously, and and a lot of a lot of them are great actors, but the test is when you read them and you see how well they understand the humor and they can take direction. And, and she really got the jokes. She really understood yeah. how she had to play it to, for it to be funny or sweet. And So you didn't need to do line readings or anything with her? No, and, and, and Harbour actually, he was also very good when it came to her and he obviously had experience from Stranger Things. Uh, right. But he came on set every day when they were doing the walkie scenes and he was there with her on the other side and, and really helped that process. Uh, and she also had a mom who was great when it comes to the tone of the film she understood that so she read with her every night and before set so she was so well prepared when she came on set and she actually improvised a few things wow. uh, like the when she's swinging out that um, punching bag she was screaming yeah. incoming it's like, oh, <laughs> brilliant like that <laughs> yeah so that, that was a that was again like we, we and we added more of that in the process after i came in because i just i thought if we can make people believe in this relationship and if you can make them care about that, we can go as crazy as we want on the rest. Um, so you had no challenges because she was so good. Yeah. No, there was, I have to say, like, yes, it took, as it, it takes a little longer and she has, of course, her, she had to have school every day and yeah. she has hours she has to keep and we had a great double we could use at times. Um, the hardest part of the shoot was actually, it was a very aggressive schedule and it was just insanely cold. How many days? <laughs> I think it was originally 38, but we got a few more, a few more days. Um, so I think 41, something like that. But the cold was unbelievable. Like Josh and I were only there for the first part of the shoot, but it was like the highs were negative 20. Like and Fahrenheit. where exactly was yeah. it shot? In Winnipeg. Oh, 
Yes, northern Canada. That's why we always joke. It's like they they managed to find the one place that's consistently colder than both Minnesota and northern Norway. (laughs) (laughs) And and we got the hell out of there before they started on the night exteriors. I can't even imagine. Yeah, have a good time, Tommy. Back to L.A. It was three weeks uh, of night exterior and Uh, minus 25 is 30 Celsius. And uh, just always with Winnipeg. And I'm used to that kind of temperature, but I'm not used to the constant wind. It's always a little bit of wind just hitting you, just piercing your clothes. It's like uncomfortable, and the actors are grumpy, and the crew are grumpy. Like night exteriors are difficult anyway. Yeah, but with that added, it had to have been miserable. It, it was, but it, I also part of me, I don't know why. Maybe I'm. I, I get a kick out of things. I get a kick out of it when people are miserable. <laughs> if, if other people are complaining or like, like I get energy out of that, and I right. actually and you're able with, to be the guiding force. Yeah. Yes. And I, because I'm grown, I grew up in that. I kind of used to it, but it was painfully cold. And there was one night we actually. It was the only night we canceled shooting. It was when the oil inside the dolly froze. Oh we couldn't get up and down anymore. It's like ah. Let's just go home. Yeah, I think that's a wrap. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. So were there any scenes that were shot but were not included? That oh, yeah. you yeah. Uh, anything that you miss, Pat and Josh? I mean, we missed the one liners just because we yeah. loved them so much. <laughs> but I don't I don't really feel like there was one scene that they didn't shoot that kind of kept popping in and out of the script up until the last minute and then didn't get shot. Yeah, there was like an extra just scene of die hardy um, yeah. kind of suspense. That we miss a bit, but I don't know. As far as like what they shot, I, you know, not everything should make it in. Yeah, there was a yeah, little bit yeah. more about his origin that I think got cut kind of for pacing, but also to leave some mystery for perhaps yeah. if, knock on wood, this is a success, we can dig into that a little deeper later. And there was the alternate ending, I was, was yeah, fine. That's a big one. The, we had a, the movie was not supposed to end the way it did, and because the whole idea was that through this journey, Santa, and he learns through Trudy that he can actually do more. He, he, it's not just about delivering presents. He can use his powers to actually physically uh, do stuff and help people. So in the we shot this scene as well, and it, and it was some of the finest acting Harbert did actually. It was he actually? There's a montage in the beginning of the movie where Santa goes through all these houses, and this one house particularly was a little girl sleeping in bed, while the dad is drunk in the sofa or in the chair uh, with his bear on the side, basically being a bad dad. And we go back there at the end, and he, this guy wakes up, and he just his bear's gone, and then he's Santa sitting in the corner in the dark. He sort of turns on the light. <laughs> And he has his speech about, I'm, I'm always watching you, basically, and threatens with a hammer before it goes <laughs> up the chimney. But when we cut it, it, it just felt like it was one ending to money. It's always a classical thing. But also, I really, when we were cutting it together, I felt like it should end like a Christmas movie. It's got to yeah. end on that flying away into the moon, saying Merry Christmas. Uh, so, so was yeah. it a reshot ending, or you just cut a p- chunk out of it? Yeah, cut the cut a chunk out of it. Uh, so the end that we have now is, it was kind of the, yeah, it's a beautiful shot where he flies into the moon, saying ho ho ho, all that stuff. But originally, yes, it goes to dark after that, and he shows up at that house. That's a kind of a bonus thing, I guess. Yeah, it was like an epilogue, right? But that is the classic Christmas ending: is like I gotta go finish my delivery. And yeah, Santa <laughs> yeah. flies away. Ding 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 ding. The Christmas episode of any kind of kids cartoon or whatever, which like seemed appealing. Exactly. Regarding endings, I guess we can we don't want to spoil it because we haven't seen it. But the trip, and you said, oh yeah, if he pays off the way we hope, we we can. He's the right guy for this, but the original cut of the trip was so much darker. Before, before it did not end up like that. Might Actually, not have been the right guy. <laughs> I'll show you that old ending. It was so dark. Yeah, I, was, I, I want to see the other ending. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. so, so tell me about the experience of reshooting. Did you have any reshoots on this one? Uh, no. But on Hansel and Gretel, I assume you did? No, we actually... I never done any reshoots on any of my film, but on Hansel and Gretel, we did something, again, new to me, uh, what they call a marketing shoot. So what they... And this is, I guess, the craziness of the studios and how much money they have. But when I pitched Hansel and Gretel, there was no other fairy tale movies out there. Uh, they said they bought the pitch, but they sat on it for a year and a half or it was uh. two years. So during that time, there was on the, a couple of fairy tale movies getting made. There was a Red Riding Hood one, and there was uh, Snow White and the Huntsman. Right. And Snow White and the Huntsman had just come out while we were in production, I believe, and it was a big hit. And I don't know if you remember that trailer or that film. It was a great trailer with a lot of great slow mo. And I love slow-mo watching it. I, I don't use 
much slow on my movies. I, I never done that, that did that, but so we get a call from marketing and say, Tommy, we gotta shoot some stuff just for the trailer. Uh, like big, big slow motion stuff. Like, what? What do you mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, because we want to sell it, and Snow White and Huntsman, they had great success. So we, we want to do what somebody else did successfully. Yes, yeah, so yeah. like, but but I, I said to them, well, I always hate when I see a trailer and there's tons of stuff that's not in the movie, so can you send me what you're planning shooting for this stuff? And they sent me, like, this kill and this kill and this kill. And so I asked if, can I try to rewrite them slightly so I can actually cut them into my film? And they agreed to that. So we, it was a marketing shoot, but we brought those stuff into it the film. It ended up in the movie. That's smart to yeah. actually like, use the extra little bit of budget. Uh, That's yeah, great. Yeah, but still, I do feel when I watch the movie, it sticks out. Suddenly, like, <laughs> there's all this fast, same Remy stuff, and then there's this slow motion, beautiful, <laughs> turning into dust stuff that doesn't even fit the film. But, but people don't feel cheated uh, by not having yeah. something that they saw in the trailer. Yes, exactly. Yeah. What about the marketing? Uh, how, how do you feel about violent night which well i i was there and i think was the first ever screening of it at well the screen a couple of test uh, test screening test okay yeah, well let's yeah. talk about the test screening how did the first test screening go the first time you ever saw it with an audience so we tested it twice and the first test screening out in orange was like the beyond fest screening almost as good yeah was that the, was like a rock concert it yeah. was uh, people were Yes, and, and this Crazy. test reading was so good. I, honestly, in the studio, was so excited. We scored so high, and everybody was just thrilled. And Don't do another one. <laughs> no, and I didn't want it. Like, nobody really wanted it, but they had, I think they had three tests planned, but I said, let's just do one more, and if you want to try some stuff. And and we did, and uh, we tested it in Burbank that time. And, we put and did in, you do some rearranging? Yes. So we put in more, a lot more jokes, and we extended some scenes, and it was actually really interesting. It was, I don't like that process in general. I, yeah. I get... The idea of seeing a film with a crowd and feel the energy and see what works and doesn't. I don't like the scoring cards and all that stuff, but I'm glad the studio gets confidence in that and all that stuff. But we did the second screening, and it was Which actually was the first one that we went to. Yeah, was the second one, and it went really well. It didn't go as well, and it was actually really interesting just to see how these tiny things we put back in kind of messed with the balance a little bit. Oh, there was too many jokes, like a scene ended on a joke where it shouldn't, and it was like. It so you messed a little bit with the energy. Your instincts were correct the first time around. Yeah, yeah, it was. And, and we, so we basically just cut out that stuff, did some tiny more tweaks, and that was it. Now, as the writers watching it with an audience for the first time, tell me about that experience. Well, it was funny is because we weren't at the first one, so we were at the second one, and it went great. But then we were walking out, and Pat and I were like, wow! And then we were looking around at, like, our universal exec and everybody. Tommy's going, you should have been at the first one. Yeah, everyone's like, it was like their grandmother died. And it's like, guys, we got to figure this out. And we're like, what? Yeah, that movie killed. What are you guys talking about? The orange audience versus the Burbank audience. But that was also the first, like we hadn't seen any cut at that point. So it was good to see it with the audience, but it's also like the first time you see it. Yeah. You're so fixated on like, like, oh, where'd that line go? And what the, you know. So you couldn't watch it as a regular audience member. That was, by that point, we fully absorbed yeah. the finished cut of the movie and could like fully enjoy yeah, it. Yeah, seeing it with that Beyond Fest crowd. Well, oh, was so that was great, great. and I'm so glad so that you guys had us see it there rather than a screener or something. Mm-hmm. Because first of all, it's the movie theater where I shot the opening of Sleepwalkers, <laughs> so <laughs> so it had yeah. great history yes. for me. The whole dance sequence That's with Machen, cool. yeah. But to see that it's become the Cinematheque, but sold out. And they were rowdy as hell. And I haven't been to a rowdy movie in a long time. And they were so joyous and appreciative that, you know, I always say horror and comedy are best shared. And you got both of them there, big time. Yeah, I hope everyone goes to see it. I'm really happy that it's an in-theaters-only release. Yeah. Because I know this day and age, if if you can see it at home, it's very tempting. Yeah, you don't want to watch it on Peacock first. Yeah. 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 But I mean, like right from the beginning, like we always knew, I mean, this, the idea for the movie is so ridiculous and the fact that it is like played kind of mostly deadpan. So it's not like tons of jokes. It's fewer, bigger jokes that will get huge laughs. Like if you're with a crowd, the comedy works like gangbusters. And like I said, that's rarely uh, uh, the effect that most horror comedies have. Yeah. Yeah. We always envision this playing to theaters full of people like that's like really how it's meant to be watched wow. not because it requires the gigantic screen or whatever like Avatar, right. but because of the benefit of having the people around you and everyone laughing together share and fear are contagious yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
and uh, so Tommy, what are your favorite uh, Christmas horror movies? Christmas horror movies. I mean, Gremlins we discussed earlier. That's yeah. uh, that's the one I absolutely loved, obviously. And I that again when I was a kid watching that kitchen fight in the Gremlin, like that's uh, such a favorite <laughs> with the blender, I, yeah, <laughs> microwave and all that stuff. You know, but one film that I had on VHS that I watched a lot of times was Silent Night, Deadly Night. And oh yeah, where Linnea gets put on the antlers. <laughs> yeah, and I, my favorite kill in that one is actually where they go uh, slaying. Is that what you say? Yeah, like they go down the hill. And he steps out mid, like the, the, because I think the, is it parents or friends are waiting at the bottom, so they are slaying down the hill, and Santa steps out with this axe, and they cut away, and then you cut to the people waiting at the bottom of the hill. It's like, where's the, <laughs> are they coming? And the head just controlling. <laughs> it's funny we're in a world where we can talk about my favorite kill is. Yeah. <laughs> so um, Pat, Pat, what about you? I mean. Gremlins. I mean, it is funny though because Violent Night is more of an action movie than a horror movie, even though it kind of has the kills of a, yeah, a yeah. slasher kills. movie. Yeah. It's like Kill a heroic energy. slasher. <laughs> but you know, it's like just like the like the Long Kiss Goodnight and like other kind of the Christmas action movies, of which there haven't been enough. Which is also why we wanted to, to make this one right to add to the Christmas action canon. Uh, I was gonna say I'm a big fan of. Uh, Silent Night, Deadly Night 5, Toy Maker. <laughs> okay, we're really getting uh, in the weeds now. Once we get into now. the Brian Yuzna phase of the oh, franchise. Yeah. I also just think it's so funny. Yeah, because growing up, for the people who don't know listening, Mickey Rooney very famously came out against Silent Night, Deadly Night 1 when it actually got banned and like pulled from the theater and he had like a big newspaper, like, not expose is not Editorial. the word. Yeah. yeah, but just like railing against how dare they do this. To Christmas. To our beloved Santa. Cut to four movies later, and he's starring in one of them. <laughs> uh, Rare Exports may be my favorite yeah. Christmas movie. Yeah. It's so brilliant and so original. And, you know, there, there's a lot to be said about the Norwegian sense of humor, too, or the Scandinavian sense yeah, of humor. Yeah. And Was that popular in Norway? No, it wasn't that popular, but it was a known movie. Norwegians hate the Finns. My production designer, again, that I studied with and worked with, I think she did that one, actually. Really? It's beautiful. Yeah. You know, it's not just really imaginative. It looks beautiful. And yours is, too. Tell me about how the uh, production balance was between location and studio work. Well, we built the entire mansion interior. uh, So um, you could go up. Two floors. And well, that, all was, of that was we didn't practical. have money to build two floors, so, so I have to give a credit to our production designer Roger Fires, who came up with this idea of basically every single room has different uh, um, what do you call it uh, wallpaper on ah, each side. So yeah. you basically just flip the walls. Really? Yeah, like a theater. So you and you'd have stairs that lead up, but start over again yes. on the other set. Yes, and the bedrooms are downstairs. We flip, flip the walls, and there's bedroom upstairs. And the, and we actually reused the, the big dining hall, the big giant room. After we'd done shooting there, we redressed it to be the barn where he takes on the 20 mercenaries. So we reused a lot of those sets. Um, and like the attic was also the interior of the cabin where Scrooge and Santa <laughs> fight. It was, it was very cool to look at the set because, like, again, recycling is great. Coming yeah. off of like the Sonic movies, like those had more money, and a Sonic one like shot in one of the biggest warehouses in Vancouver. So you walk in there, and it's like each room is like its own little island with like nothing else around it in the yeah. soundstage, including like the yeah the house where uh, James Marsden lives. Like they built like basically the entire house on the set, you know, Amazing. just surrounded by a big curtain. Uh, <laughs> but you could walk in and walk around like a full size, basically functional house. But yeah, it was like the the Violent Night. It was a much smaller soundstage. And yeah, Roger used it so smartly. It was like a weird little jigsaw, almost like an MC Escher's kind of puzzle <laughs> of stairwells and, and yeah. very contained but i guess the biggest challenge on that side was because we shot in winnipeg because they have a 40 percent rebate right. uh, but there was two things apparently that they didn't have which was mansions or hills <laughs> so mansion, it's so windy <laughs> yes uh so mansion the the exterior we just found the big house and we ex- do cgi to extend it that was easy but the hill was a much more complicated thing where Santa r- runs down the sleigh and for right. inter- uh, intersects with snowmobiles. So we looked and we looked and we couldn't, I'm not joking, we couldn't find a single hill uh, <laughs> anywhere. 
so we actually built it with like 50 truckloads of snow. Oh, you end. built a hill. So we built a hill. Um, but that was, I guess... Made a mountain out of a mole. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but that, again, like, so I should tell this story because it's so funny. This Again, like the some of the, the big filmmaking minds of... I remember they, we had a meeting about building this hill and there was like all these suggestions. Well, should we build like this railing underneath for safety? And this was like, what are you talking about? Just, it's snow. Just put it on top of each other. <laughs> yeah. Make a big pile of snow. Yeah, I don't know. Is it safe? Yeah, like putting snow over a structure, then the structure could collapse. Yeah, that yeah, makes exactly. it dangerous. Yeah. That kind of happens. The snow is not going to collapse. The snow <laughs> is snow. So how do you plan to spend opening night? Um, opening night, well, we are doing that Q&A uh, at the Alamo Draft House, and I was hoping to sneak into a couple of screenings as well. It's playing in IMAX. I want to sneak into uh, one of those. Yeah. yeah. See what it looks and sounds like in there. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So you've got to nose around the theaters that it's opening in, particularly in areas like the Valley and the mm-hmm. Lake. Yeah. yeah. And I actually have a lot of Norwegians coming in for the premiere, so that, that's, awesome. that, that's always fun. Well, I want to wish you happy holidays in every way, and thank you guys for coming and sharing the, your stories with us, and uh, can't wait to see it become a big hit for you. Thank you. Knock on wood. Thank ho, you so ho, much. Ho. Pleasure. Thank you for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every Wednesday or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Postmortem with Mick Garris is produced by Mick Garris and Joe Russo. Our sound engineer is Christopher Leon Price. Our announcer is Jeff Gelb. Our graphic designer is John Holland. And our theme was composed and performed by Bill Burney with additional music by John Jasensky. If you're enjoying our show, please take a moment to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening to the Dread Podcast Network.